0: progressive news network it is sunday july 26th. i'm gonna
1: shove my dick in a waffle iron
0: oops sorry i do not know where that came from holy crap that was like out of nowhere that was kyle Kalinski letting us know that he was going to shove his dick in a waffle iron to something to do with you i touched my ipad i swear to god this was not in my show notes okay um but back to the show uh we've got a big show, uh regardless of what Kyle ends up doing with with his penis. Um tonight we've got uh we had our producers producing content this week like freaking you know, wild animals. Rick has two interviews and you know Rick's reporting from the road. And uh, we got part two of his interview with the professor, Wendy Len Lee about COVID and back to school. Uh, That'll be a short piece. That'll be uh, at the top of the next hour, top of uh, eight o'clock. He's also interviewed uh, uh, some folks engaged in energy conservation. And they've done a little discussion about how, how, Conservation impacts health and it impacts climate change. And uh, they get into some practical details like how to get cheap solar panels. This is this is, uh, stuff you need to know, real practical, pragmatic stuff. At the bottom of the next hour, Jeanine's going to come on a little bit early tonight because she has a special message for the governor of Missouri who was opening schools up along with our uh, brain genius in uh florida so uh so whatever she says about the governor in um whatever she says about the governor in missouri it goes twice as much for our silly man who is the governor of florida then after that she will continue with the justice report where she is examining how we have come to have stormtroopers uh and spoiler alert it has to do with um uh, unitary executive and the old torture memo so there's some there's some deep politics she's going to be getting into at 8:30 at the bottom of the next hour um But first, we've just got, we've got so much stuff going on. We just need to get right to it. We got to get right down in it. And, um, you know, what I'm talking about is the nitty gritty. All right. Little bumper music for your enjoyment. Nitty gritty. Um, you know, I called it the weekly beat this week in the promo graphic. I used to run a, a newspaper called the weekly beat. And I like that name because there's just like in a week, there are so many things that, that happen. And, uh, you know, it things seem to, to go with a rhythm and the rhythm this week got a little bit off kilter. We got a little syncopated with our rhythm this week. So I did an interview with Pat Coat and uh, Joy Savage. Um, and I'm holding that for stuff that is coming up this week. So we've got, uh, we're adding a show on Wednesday that is a PNN extra, which I've always done like during uh, debates and stuff like that. But we're reviving PNN extra for the middle of the week for a couple of reasons. And one is we've got too much COVID uh, news to cover just at the end of the week. And also the end of the week on Sunday, uh, we're dealing with old data essentially. So the most reliable data Seems to be coming out on Tuesday, so that gives us a, a day to review that and then um, push it out to to listeners. I am uh, uh, I've invited Karthik Krishnire to come on and talk. We are going to be really getting down into the details of uh, the COVID crisis, and this is especially important as schools are opening and as cases are exploding everywhere especially in Florida uh, and also don't forget on Thursdays at 8pm uh, we have the environmental justice report with Jenny and Mala she's writing a book on environmental justice and uh, so as you listen to her presentations on on Thursdays you, you'll kind of get a feel for where she's going to be going in her new book um, so Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. PNN Extra. Thursday nights at 8 p.m. we've got the Justice Report. If you're subscribed to PNN, you're going to get all of these podcasts just delivered right to you. So I encourage folks to sign up at iTunes and um, give us a thumbs up or whatever they do over there um, and let them know that did you like us? It helps us out a whole bunch. We also have our little fundraiser uh, thing in, in our show notes tonight. Uh, throw throw a few coins our way if you can. And I know now is a very bad time, but we are renewing our um, service with Blog Talk Radio and. We do that every year, and that's the only time we we ask for money, and I've said this every week. And uh, thank you to the people who have uh, donated. It is is really helpful. Now, if you donate at that link, it's going to take you to uh, the page that I set up for donating to – the Florida Squeeze. It's the same thing, you know. We're we're uh, Florida Squeeze. I try to pay for uh, a promotion of stories through social media, and then for Progressive News Network, we're we're just doing these stuff to make the show bigger, make the show better. Uh, I'm also looking at doing a restream and getting out on some new channels. So there's some there's some expansions and some good stuff headed our way just with regard to the show. So those were show notes. weekly stuff, weekly beat. The news this week is absolutely nuts. It's bananas. Nuts and bananas. It's it, it's a whole banana split of of craziness. Uh, you know, so the so the cares act ran, ran out on the 24th. And that puts us at the zero hour with regard to uh, social fabric, just completely coming undone. Uh, No more $600 benefits or lifting moratoriums on evictions. Uh, We already had a housing crisis. Now we have an affordable housing crisis uh, and the U.S. According to Aaron Carr, founder and executive director of the Housing Rights Initiative, the U.S. is facing an eviction crisis of biblical proportions. Now, I shared a tweet earlier this week talking about how Columbus, Ohio, is getting ready to – they're opening up their sports stadiums as eviction courts and also designating certain public lands for homeless people, which that to me is uh, completely insane. You know, why not just serve the needs of the people and make sure that people can remain housed and, you know, try to ride out this pandemic with some kind of of safety and dignity. I'm absolutely appalled by that news coming from Ohio. Now, there's this story And, oh, my God, this isn't going to happen very often, but I have a story from Vox, And that's from a while ago. It was in July 8th, and it's by Jen Carby called America's Looming Housing Catastrophe Explained. And, of course, they say explained. This is what they do. It's rather long, and it covers all the bases as normally happens in a... um, vox articles so there's there's a few data points in here that I just have to share you know this public health catastrophe what what it, what we're dealing with with covid is being paired with an economic catastrophe now and we've been shielded from that just a little bit with the cares act and the senate and the house the congress has Essentially, three days this week—they have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday—to come up and agree, come up with something and agree on it and vote it up, so that we can continue to live with some sort of sense of stability. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is swearing up and down that that's going to happen. So, you know, we'll we'll just circle back to Nancy on on Thursday or Friday and and, and see how that goes. But in the meantime. Uh, We have an unemployment rate of over 11% in the United States, and that's not counting, uh, you know, people who have just dropped out of the job market and are uh, either doing full-time parenting or just can't work. Uh, We have 19 million people still receiving jobless benefits as of July the 2nd. And you know there's there's an interesting thing about uh unemployment benefits of course they are they've been sent back to the states you know that was something when they ended welfare as we know it during the Clinton administration and so um you you have these vast differences of what people's experience is like, depending on what state you live in. So I was, uh, it caught my attention in Harper's this month. A lot of things caught my attention in Harper's uh, regarding the letter, but um, this is on the index and I love the index. It's I, you know, I always read it no matter what other stuff in there is annoying the hell out of me. Very interesting statistics here. The percentage of unemployed workers in Massachusetts who receive unemployment benefits, the percentage is 66%. And the percentage of unemployed workers in Florida who receive unemployment benefits is eight. It's a single digit, y'all. It is eight percent. Oh my God. Florida sucks so goddamn bad. Where's that? Where's that? uh,
1: I'm going to shove my dick in a waffle iron. I'm going to shove my dick in a waffle iron.
0: That's, that's how I feel about this. You know, if I had a dick, I would be shoving it into a waffle iron. Good. With regard to how messed up things are right now. The, um, the, uh, the, uh crisis right now that's getting ready to happen is a patchwork of eviction notices across the country. Uh, they're they're all running out of time. So they, they all had a sunset date built in, which is essentially the end of July. Housing courts are reopening. Eviction moratoriums are expiring. Um, and we don't have that $600 a month anymore coming from the feds. And like I just uh, said, uh, you know, unemployment benefits are varying widely, and if you're in Florida, you're just shit out of luck. Now, um, there's another statistic here in the old Harper's Index that is kind of a corollary to this, and it's the percentage of Americans who view the coronavirus as a major threat to their finances is 41%, and the percentage who view coronavirus as a major threat to their health is 38%. So fewer people are afraid of their health than they are their economic situation with uh, vis-a-vis this this whole um, shitstorm that that has descended upon us. Uh, Before the pandemic, America's nearly 43 million renters, About 20.8 million were cost burdened, meaning more than 30% of their income went to housing costs. Um, America lacks a supply of affordable housing. We have a shortage of about seven million affordable homes. You know, real estate is booming for uh, you know McMansions. People are. Buying and selling, all, you know, there's all kinds of transactions happening right now, but it's but it's all rich people, you know. It's it's all the people who got all of the big money from the government, you know, the the something something trillion. What was it? Five trillion or whatever is just straight payouts to uh, um, uh, businesses, you know, and and so now the the government is all concerned now they're concerned that there's like a moral hazard and munchen mnuchin came out today and uh, he had this to say about our looming crisis oops
1: technical problem but the fundamental issue and we all acknowledged there was a technical problem where we were in emergency last time so we instituted this quickly and in certain cases people were paid more to stay home than they were to work. And I think that's something that the American public understands. We're not going to use taxpayer money to pay people more to stay home. So
0: that is so disgusting coming from this particular person, knowing, you know, how much money was just Flat out given to like airlines and Boeing, like billions and billions of dollars, bailing them out for, you know, the shitty, you know, shitty business practices. I I mean, you know, screw the free market. These guys, it is full on socialism for the rich. Um, But I interrupted. He continues.
1: We're going to transition to a uh, a UI system that is based on wage replacement. We've talked about approximately 70% wage replacement. And uh, we're just going through the mechanics of that.
0: So a UI program with 70% wage replacement sounds to me a little bit like what uh, Northern European countries have been doing from the very freaking start. Um It looks like his concern is that people aren't paid more to stay home, you know, like, like, you know, you wouldn't want to give people, you know, $24 billion to bail them out, you know, like like you did an airline that totally doesn't deserve it, Um, that they, they should be using that money that they got from the government to pay their workers, which, of course, they're not. They're buying back stock, and, you know, there's, there's absolutely no strings attached to that money. And I'm not even sure if they ever got a, a, a person appointed for oversight for that. You now that, that's been up in the air for quite some time. Uh, Mnuchin continues.
1: And there's, there's very strong tax incentives, tax credits in this bill to get people back to work.
0: So there you go. You're going to get a tax
1: credit. You
0: know, you're going to get a tax credit in 2021 sometime, maybe, according to him. Listen, we've got three days this week. We've got Nancy Pelosi needs to get uh, the Democratic caucus and, and, you know, get their asses in gear because this is unacceptable. I don't want to live in a city where we've got half the people homeless i don't and nobody wants that even even these ridiculous you know coke funded libertarian types they're going to make damn sure that they don't you know have to go or see or or experience anything having to do with people being homeless but the fact of the matter is is if you're creating that society in a city where you live in the country and where you live then you've you you're 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 making it a shithole. You're just making life shitty for, for everybody and, uh, um, and dangerous, you know, because people who don't have a, a, a place to live are, um, are insecure and people who don't have a job are financially insecure. And uh, uh, imagine being a young family you know, mom, dad, and a couple of kids, and you lose your house, you lose your place to live. You are, uh, best case scenario, living in a in in some sort of minivan or camper that can accommodate a, a family safely. Can you imagine the pressure? Can you imagine how uh, uh, out of control you would feel? Um, I think I've talked about on the show that but before that that I have been housing. Uh, i've i've been unhoused in the past during college it was not fun i don't recommend it for anybody and um you know i don't recommend it as a social uh, feature i'm actually very i am i'm more concerned i'm far more concerned about the security of of families uh, in toto with regard to this economic situation than I am with regard to the protesting situation. I feel that the economic situation has far more potential to actually hurt people and to um, cause great suffering. And what's going on with the protest is, you know, people exercising their right to free speech. Uh, and speaking of that, uh, a judge in Seattle ruled that media companies must hand over unpublished protest images to police. Uh, so, um, you know, this is a. This is a five news outlets will have to comply with a subpoena to give the Seattle Police Department unpublished video and photos from a May 30 racial justice protest that turned violent. The judge said, um, uh, "What they're concerned about here in the in the next paragraph, what they're concerned about, King County Superior Court Judge Nelson Lee." Sided with the police department, of course, on, uh, in a morning hearing, ruling that its subpoena was enforceable. So the police subpoenaed all the media companies. And he found that the photos and video were critical to an investigation of the alleged arson of police vehicles and theft of police guns. Now, who knows? Who knows who set those vehicles on fire, who stole those guns. Uh, The point here is is that, uh, as Ron Wyden tweeted out, uh, he says, it's abhorrent that any government official would weaponize the free press to quell peaceful protests. Journalists should not be arms of law enforcement, full stop. Freaking hell yeah, U.S. Senator from Oregon and a ranking member of the Senate fin- Finance Committee. That is way to go. That's, a, that's an attaboy. Um, that's what we want to hear. Uh, I'm sure that this is going to be appealed. I'm sure that this is going to turn into a big bloody mess. And, uh, um, you know, this is what happens when you don't support uh, Julian Assange. This is what happens when... You know when you when you pick which journalists you feel are worthy of having protections. You know you can't pick and choose like that. It's you, free speech is people have free speech or they don't. You know and uh, and so Seattle, which also welcomed in mercenaries this this weekend, wel- welcomed the mercs to come and. uh uh harass protesters. So, you know, all of that is really bad. All of that is just, ugh, you know, we gotta we gotta fix this. At the same time, uh I don't think that the protests are gonna cause mass suffering. <laughs> They are they are protesting mass suffering, and and it's absolutely necessary. And nothing makes me feel better than to see, you know, people coming together and in one voice, you know, having the solidarity and presenting in one voice that uh, that they're not going to stand for police violence against um, people of color. And I think that that's super important. Um, what we do have to fear is what is getting ready to happen to cities and. And, and to our neighbors, and you know, as I look around the neighborhood, I know that that there's a lot of people who live in my neighborhood who um, are in that category of, of, you know, it's hard. It's hard to make ends meet. Um, if one person lo- loses a job, that's a that's a hardship. If both people lose a job, or both people get sick, then you're in, uh, you're in deep water, very, very fast. So uh, I can't leave it there. I can't leave it there. We've, we've, we, we got to pull out of this nosedive. We got to, we got to take this uh, somewhere before we uh, depress everybody all to hell. So something else happened this week that I think is super interesting. From time to time on the show, I'll mention uh, UFO news because I think it's wonderful and it's it's not political and it's something that, uh, you know, you can use your reasoning muscles and your visionary muscles and, you know, kind of open up the box that you're dealing with and kind of imagine other things. Right. I, it's part of the whole, uh, you know, when you, when you look at these, these issues or these things like, you know, they're, they're more expansive than, than politics. Politics is often so reductive all you know, pinpointing and you want to get down to that one person or that one vote, you know? And, you know, if, if only you could, um, persuade them or coerce them to do the one thing that you want um i just gotta have something else to put my attention to from time to time and so interestingly this week the new york times did a, a, another article The new york times has been doing quite a few in the last few years the uh, articles on ufos or how the how the military deals with UFOs. You know, we had the tic tac situation with the um, Fravor videos, and uh, we had the we recently had the Navy revamping how uh, these sightings should be reported. So this story, this news story, says that um, over a decade, this program. To, uh, that, there, that there's uh, been a Pentagon program that has been in the shadows, but it will no longer be in the shadows, and it will be producing uh, public reports from time to time about, uh, about what's going on. Now, I'm going to share a little bit from, from uh, UFO insider Richard Dolan. I like Richard Dolan. He's a historian. He's nonpartisan. He doesn't look at this as, uh, you, you know, through, through the lens of anything but a historian. And I think that that's a, um, a b- before he got into the UFO stuff, he was a, uh, he studied the Cold War. And so this, uh, this particular folk war that has to do with, with the UFOs and UAPs intersects. With Cold War um, history in a, in a lot of ways, which he has uh, written about, and you know he's he's one of the better authors out there. So go and go and look up Richard Dolan, check out his books. He's got a great one on UFOs and national security. Now, you know, I think like at at the end of the day, at the very end of the day, I think the whole reason that this stuff is being talked about is uh, has to do with money. Now, there's the To the Stars Academy that is uh, um, been pushing for a lot of these disclosures. And one of the guys in the To the Stars Academy is a guy named Christopher Mellon. And if you've ever heard of, uh, well, uh, Christopher Mellon is, is is big, big old money all right, Um, and very tied um, into our military intelligence sector. So he's the former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, the third highest intelligence position at the Pentagon, and later for security and information operations. He also served as Staff Director of the United States Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Christopher Mellon was born to the Mellon family, the son of Carl N. Mellon, the great-grandson of Gulf Oil founder William Laramore Mellon. And so if you've ever heard of the uh, the, the Mellon Scaife Foundation, which are uh, arch like I'm talking like, like John Bircher, you know, style uh, uh conservatives, the melonscapes are are in that group. So I kinda have a hairy eyeball towards anything that, that uh that the melons and Christopher Mellon are associated with and he's like one of the main guys at the two of the Stars Academy that are pushing all of these stories out. Um and they're also involved in this uh, story I think it's on the history network uh or the history channel. And it's a a show called Unidentified Inside America's UFO Investigation. It's in its second season. And and during the first season, it was timed that that show was coming out and and talking about the Tic Tac video at the same time, essentially, as news was breaking about the Tic Tac video. So they got a lot of press on their first season, not so much on the second season. Um, But this particular story, I think, is part of what they're doing in the second season of the show, it's just amazing how you're seeing in real time the alignment of media with a narrative that serves the (laughs) the, uh, defense industry with people who are you know, not just adjacent to the defense industry. They they come from it and they come from the intelligence side of it. So I mean like all of this is sticky, deep parapolitics goodness. You know, this is a this is a whole melange right here. So uh Leslie Kane and Ralph Blumenthal uh put out this this article in the New York Times. They've written together before as a team, uh, doing the the first stories on the UFO stuff. And as this was all kind of coming out, something something weird happened that was kind of insidery, like this is inside baseball in the UFO community. Uh, Ralph Blumenthal was being interviewed uh, by a um, like a UFO community person. Uh, a, a attorney Michael Hall uh, Michael Hall has been doing uh, you know, FOIA requests and this and that and so he was, on like a, he was on a show with Michael Hall that was surreptitiously being live streamed um, and their conversation uh, at a time in the conversation when they were talking about the uh, uh, Admiral Wilson notes by Dr. Eric Davis And once Blumenthal realized that they were being live streamed, he demanded the video be cut. Now, that video has been taken down, but people have been, you know, we know enough, you know, without seeing it, a lot of people saw it. Uh, We know what they were talking about there. Uh, They started out uh, uh, with rumors that the investigation had moved more generally towards UFO crash retrievals this is what is important about this story that was in the New York times is it is taking the focus away from those tic-tac things that we're, that we're seeing in the sky. And they're saying, we've got, uh, we've got a situation with, with retrievals and materials or meta materials associated with, with these crashes. Uh, Also this week, Marco Rubio uh, was was all over social media talking about UFOs because he's got a bill that he sponsored in the Senate uh, that the Senate just passed that uh, that funds. Uh, uh, unidentified aerial phenomenon task force to report on ufo and uap activity and at least some of that information will be made to the general public and of course it will be made to the general public because it's making the case to put the money into these programs at a time when when we we ha- actually have a space force right now um If you're familiar with any of this stuff, you're familiar with Lou Elizondo, who's the guy with the soul patch who uh, supposedly walked away from his uh, uh, intelligence job to do this UFO thing. He said he's convinced that objects of undetermined origin have crashed on Earth with materials retrieved for study. That's a very precise statement. He says that he's convinced There are objects that to earth with materials retrieved for study. So in saying that, he's implying a lot, but he's not really saying anything solid. Uh, And the same goes for Senator Harry Reid, who said that, um, uh, again, his, his quote in the story focused on what he thinks rather than what he knows. For instance, Reid said he believed that crashes of objects of unknown origin may have occurred. Um, he is uh, uh, quoted as saying, "quote He came to the conclusion, or I he I came to the conclusion that there were reports, some were substantive, some not so substantive, that there were actual materials in the government and private sector in in their possession that were you know not of this world. Now there are four paragraphs that are super important here, and I'm going to try to get through this really quick." Um, The Times had to issue a correction regarding Reed. An earlier version of this article inaccurately rendered remarks attributed to Harry Reed, the retired Senate Majority Leader from Nevada. Mr. Reed said he believed that crashes of objects of unknown origin may have occurred and that retrieved materials should be discovered. He did not say that crashes had occurred, that retrieved materials had been studied secretly for decades, but he believes, he believes that. So it's a, it's a really wild kind of uh, uh, walk back. Then um, Dr. Eric Davis, who is very important in this whole study because he was present and taking notes at this uh, uh, particular meeting with Admiral Wilson in the late 90s. And this is when Admiral Wilson was director of everything having to do with intelligence. and realized he wasn't read into a particular program dealing with this. And so the notes, where all of this is coming from, have to do with that one meeting. So Dr. Eric Davis, an astrophysicist who worked as a subcontractor and then a consultant for the, P- the Pentagon UFO program since 2007, said that in some cases, examination of the materials had so far failed to determine their source and led him to conclude, quote, we couldn't make it ourselves, unquote. The constraints on discussing classified programs and the ambiguity of information cited in unclassified slides from the briefings have put officials who have studied UFOs in the position of stating their views without presenting hard evidence. Now, Dr. Eric Davis works for a company called Aerospace Corporation, I had to check that twice. It is indeed company called Aerospace Corporation. That's hilariously generic. Um, And he gave, he says he gave a classified briefing to a Defense Department agency. They don't name the agency, but a Defense Department agency, as recently as March, got these briefings about materials from, quote, off-world vehicles not made of this earth. Mr. Eric Davis Uh, Dr. Davis also said he uh, gave classified briefings on retrievals of unexplained objects to staff members of the Senate Armed Services Committee in October of 2019 and to members of the Senate Intelligence Committee two days later. That is what they're reporting on. Guys, all you got to remember from this, seriously, is that they are letting the public know that Senate intelligence, and remember, back to Christopher Mellon, direct, you know, big old intelligence guy over there with a lot of history and, you know, know, his family is some of the industrial backbone of of this country. Um, These people have a lot of power. And it sounds like they've got something that they're trying to do. Uh, Tom DeLonge tweeted out this week that they were going to produce some anti-gravitics or do a um, do a, a Uh, what do you call it? Demonstration of of anti-gravitics. That should be interesting. It just seems like a lot of things are progressing on this front and nobody would be wrong to say that at the end of the day, this is about money. This is about the military wanting to get money. Um, It's also, hell, you know what? It's, it's also about crazy UFO stuff, but you know, let's keep our eye on the ball. There is a deep political, um, issue going on here. Now, that's it for me. So I'm going to cut out, and I'm going to bring you Rick Spizak, talking about energy conservation. So uh, have a listen to this, and I'll be back in 26 minutes.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, I have the great pleasure and honor to bring you Melissa Baldwin, Program Manager, Florida Clinicians for Climate Action, and Annie Vanek-Dasevich, Uh, Gulf Coast Regional Manager for Solar Energy Loan Fund, also known as SELF. Ladies, welcome. I want to mention that a lot of people who do pay attention to the news are very much giving attention to issues like uh, presidential overreach, uh, the coronavirus, of course. Uh, We have a hurricane season coming up. I was wondering, are you having any difficulty reminding people that there's so much of their you know, a damaged lifestyle, if you will, is really being impacted by the ongoing issue of the increasing changes we're seeing in our environment. And it's not just glaciers. It's not just the, uh, the people who go to ski lodges. Our climate change is impacting us every day. Annie and uh, Melissa, welcome. Melissa, tell me some of the reasons why people still need to pay attention to climate change and how it impacts their lives.
3: I we like to say that one crisis does not put itself on pause for another. So while we absolutely need to de- uh, devote all of our attention to this huge global pandemic, that doesn't change the fact that, you know, the temperature is rising and that it's a threat to us. So um, really with coronavirus, there are so many combined lessons to be learned that are similar to climate change that we need to take swift dramatic action to address the threat that has measures will fail. Um, that globally that we're all connected. And I think, too, that Annie has even found, I know that Self has found that despite this global pandemic and people facing these financial crises, demand for the services that Self provides, like energy efficiency, is higher than ever. Annie, do you want to speak to that?
4: Absolutely. So we have been, the last three months have been record-breaking months for Self. And as a nonprofit community lender, we were pretty surprised surprised by that, actually, because during a global pandemic, we did not think that uh, folks would be um, u- utilizing our services as much as they are. Um, but then we kind of thought about that a little bit differently. And we think it is because of the global pandemic that we see things uptick in uh, folks applying for help because a lot of people are in their homes now for extended periods of time where they might have not been in their homes before. They realize that they need uh, a new roof or a new air conditioner and they don't want to part with their cash. So we are an option for them to um, be able to meet the goals of the uh, pandemic relief. So,
3: mm-hmm. And if I can just add to you, Um, There's so many overarching themes that that are consistent with both the coronavirus and climate change. Um, And when we look back to how did we get here, how do we get in this myth, we see that emerging diseases can start when we push the boundaries. So we're pushing the boundaries geographically, we're logging, we're moving into areas that we just weren't in before. And so we're being exposed to animals and ecosystems that we weren't. And also just sort of taking advantage of the environment in this extraction-based economy, Um, we really expose. Ourselves to things that are new and dangerous. I mean, in fact, there's also a lot of correlation between how climate change is makes coronavirus more deadly. And so, for example, specifically when we talk about air pollution and heat trapping pollution, coal fired power plants they emit carbon dioxide, which we don't like because that's you know causes the planet to warm. That's that pollution blanket that we're trying to avoid. Uh, but also, the end, 25 was particulate matter. There's a documented increase. Uh, there's a study by Harvard that showed that when you have an increase in air pollution, you see an increase in COVID mortality. So people are dying at higher rates in places where we have higher air pollution. So really, you know, there's just uh, – and also, I just learned this the other day, that CO2 in the atmosphere contributes to bacterial and viral growth. So it makes for a more conducive atmosphere to foster those harmful viruses and bacteria.
2: A related question I'd like to ask is: while in Florida, uh, those of us uh, who um, who live here find that the impact of climate has a a moment-to-moment, every morning when we wake up, kind of impact. We'll adjust our uh, air conditioning. We'll adjust (laughs) our air conditioning to kind of reduce the climate's impact on our daily lives, but. As the overall global climate changes, it's going to be more expensive to produce energy. It's going to be more problematic with sea level rise more and more of our cooling towers, those nuclear plants placed on the edge of the seas in, in shallow bays. They're not able to work as effectively. Energy prices are going to go up, and even if it was just... On a cost-benefit analysis, climate's going to have a dramatic impact and continues to have a dramatic impact on our day-to-day lives. The good news is it doesn't happen in a vacuum. Uh, it doesn't matter that you don't control a nuclear plant. You can have an impact. Why don't you talk about some of the ways that energy efficiency can improve and help to reduce the climate change?
4: You know, I'd like to speak to that, because Please. the biggest thing you can do to help the planet is to reduce your electric usage. And you can do that through energy efficiency, obviously, right? So energy efficiency utilizes electricity a much more efficient manner. My organization helps by funding those kinds of advanced technologies that can create these types of efficiencies. But I will tell you that without our organization, folks who need these types of technologies wouldn't be able to get them because there is a cost barrier. And just like COVID, just like climate, it's, you know, the people who need it the most are impacted the most, right? And they are least likely to be able to afford it. So energy efficiency in these technologies that we are coming out with are wonderful and they can save the planet. But unfortunately, they are usually out of reach to families um, who are st- just you know, struggling to get by, paycheck to paycheck, working families. Um, one of the reasons that we are in existence is to help families afford these types of technologies.
3: And if I could add to that, too, one, one de- definition I've heard of energy efficiency that I like, is it's eliminating all energy waste. And so think about where we waste energy. We do it in many places. You do it in your home if you have, like, an old air conditioner or if you have leaky ducts or even a light bulb that's burning too hot. But we ha- also have energy waste in distribution lines and power lines where you have the electricity has to travel many miles from the source of the electricity the coal plant to our homes. So line loss and distributed energy, that's a part of it. Um, and that's why, you know, I'm so excited about SELF's program Whether they such a great program because the people who need the help the most, the people who have the unfair higher energy burden where they're paying a larger percent of their income is going to their electric bill because they live in an older house with an old AC or leaky windows, and they really need that help. And so self's is a really excellent program to reach out and, and give those folks access to affordable financing. The other point that I wanted to make is just that energy efficiency is a, a huge piece of the solution pie, if you will. And so, you know, energy efficiency is the cleanest, cheapest, quickest way to reduce emissions and tackle threats posed by global warming and sea level rise. And you mentioned something else, Rick, about how kind of, you know, when we're in our home, we can turn up the AC. Some of us can, some people can't afford it or they don't have access. Uh, but globally, I am really concerned about how hot it is going to get. There's, there's research that shows that there are gonna be vast sections of the world that are uninhabitable because they're gonna to be too hot to live. We're talking 125 degrees Fahrenheit as, you know, like an average temperature, that, that's crazy. We have got to take action to start to bend our curve. With coronavirus, we talk about flatten the curve. We want to do the same thing with our emissions. We've got to start to bend that curve down. We're running out of time uh, to take action before we hit irreversible tipping
2: points. I heard a a marine engineer talk about uh, not just sea level rise, but the impact on the thermal changes that we're seeing in the oceans, and that literally already the Gulf Stream is beginning to migrate from its path there are ways that people can reduce their energy usage. Why don't you talk a little bit more about some of the things that people can do day to day?
4: Sure, uh, so one of the easiest things
2: you can do, believe it or not.
4: and Just cock your windows and doors. So much energy loss um, is, is through windows and doors. And Melissa just recently did something which is also very inexpensive, which is to put reflective film our solar film on, on your windows, especially the ones that are south and east facing. So there's, there's, those are some of the cheap things that you can do. You know, of course, we all talk about turning off the lights, turning your air conditioner higher in the summer and, you know, lower in the winter. But, you know, those are some things that you can do right away. There's other things that are really important. You know, some of the new windows and doors are so thermally efficient that they can reduce your electric cost by, like, 20 to 30% new air conditioners are so efficient, even over the ones that we had, you know, five or six years ago that, you know, they can reduce your electric usage anywhere from 15 to 30%. You know, if you have a roof leak, you're also leaking air conditioning. If you have a duck leak, thank you very much, but you are air conditioning, Florida. So (laughs) there's a lot of things that you can do. And I always recommend to my clients that they get the free energy audit from their electric uh, utility service, and they will come out, and some of them are not coming out right now because of the corona, but in the past, they always came out, and they will tell you where you can create the greatest efficiencies in your home, and then they will also uh, tell you all about the rebates that are available. So a lot of folks um, will replace their electric, you know, like their high-efficiency, you know, like their air conditioners and heat pumps and HVACs, but they don't know that there are actually uh, rebates from the electric company for those items. Mm-hmm. And so they don't take advantage of those rebates. So it's really, um, you know, a first step is, you know, to get that energy audit and then to go around and, and just, you know, start tightening up your envelope of your home. So, Alyssa, tell us a little bit about um, what happened when you installed window film.
3: Yes, um, and I, and by the way, I did go ahead and go through that process, I, my uh, utility is Tico, and I contacted them years ago, and they came in, they gave me a free energy audit, they gave me free light bulbs, they tested the efficiency of my air conditioners, they checked my ducts, they checked my insulation. And they, I also subscribe to the um, Tico Smart Energy Planner Program, which is a program where I pay more during high usage and I pay less during low usage. So overall, I have a pretty low electric bill, but I just look year over year in a comparison um, last year, I didn't have window films on. In June, I paid $139 for my electric bill. Um, this year, my June bill was $87.
4: Wow, so I that's have a, huge. yeah you
3: know, I have a 2,000-square-foot, approximately a little under 2,000-square-foot home, and I'm paying less than $100 in June in Florida, which is crazy. Like Annie said, saving money on your electric bill is one of the best things that you can do to stop climate.
4: And one of the things we haven't talked about, of course, is renewable energy, right? So SELF really started because we didn't... Think that you should have to be a millionaire in order to afford solar panels right if we can you know and of course that also helps with line losses on the on the grid itself so you know solar panels um, are much more affordable than they have ever been before there are co-ops out there right now there's four co-ops across the state of Florida one is in Central Florida and one is here right here in Hillsborough County and then there's uh, ones in South Florida and West Florida as well and looking for those co-ops they can help drive down the cost of that watt and by driving down the cost per watt and then adding affordable financing on top of it and then getting your, you know, tax credit, federal tax credit, you can really afford uh, to to get these types of technologies. And they're more affordable than they have ever been.
2: Annie, could you talk a little bit about how people would get in touch with self to? To find out what are the opportunities available?
4: Absolutely. The best way is to just go out to our website, which, of course, is solarenergyloanfund.org. Solarenergyloanfund.org. It's probably the longest website name in the world. Um, And then also call our main office, 772-468-1818. 772-468-1818, and uh, we'll be happy to answer all your questions.
2: We've called Florida the sunshine state for a long time. Uh, How is Florida doing on energy efficiency?
3: So first of all, I want to point out, you know, I work at Florida Clinicians for Climate Action, and We work to engage uh, health professionals to learn about climate and climate health impacts and then advocate for equitable solutions. And one of the big, as I mentioned before, energy efficiency is a huge solution. It's a huge piece of the puzzle. And so energy efficiency is really, it's good for our health on multiple levels. And in terms of, like, how is Florida doing, um, when we look at our utilities, it's our electric companies. Um, I'm sad to say that we are not doing well. Florida <laughs> is really one of the worst states in the nation. Um, Florida power companies have some of the lowest standards in America in terms of helping their customers save electricity through energy efficiency programs like that, um, that like a, we just talked to you about, where the utility will come out your house, will help you save money. So, historic energy efficiency spending in Florida falls well below the national and southeastern averages, and in the southeast, which is lower than the national average, Florida is among the lowest. So, um, Investor-owned utilities saved on average about 0.22% of retail sales in 2015 compared to a national average of 0.89. So, the national average is about four times greater than what Florida does. And only five state, only five states saved less electricity than Florida in 2017. So there's a lot of room for growth in Florida.
2: We see that uh, the energy efficiency can have an impact. It, it takes people out of that, oh my God, it's the problem so much bigger than I can possibly deal with. Is there like a guide that says this is what consumers can do even without spending you know, thousands of dollars to replace their air conditioning. Is there a kind of a one-page, maybe on your website, any?
4: Um, actually, we don't. But that is a great idea. I, you know, Rick. So that, that's something I will definitely work on. But there is um, information uh, out at the um, Department of Energy and at ACE, AC Triple uh, E, uh-huh. which also keeps track of uh, all those kinds of things that you can do to, you know, make your envelope. We call it the envelope, the home envelope secure and um, more efficient so there is there is that uh, on their website um, but again you know some of the simplest things are are things we've always talked about it's stuff our mother told us right it's closing your doors when you know and not leaving them open it's you know cocking your windows and doors it's turning off the lights how many times did your mom yell at you to turn off the lights right um, it's replacing those you know, incandescent light bulbs with LEDs, which, are, which also lower the uh, usage of your AC because they're so much cooler. So these things can just really help and build up. Um, there's also things we call uh, vampire energy or phantom energy that comes because as a very connected society now, we leave everything plugged in, right? Your TV is always on, you know, it's almost come to the point where your toaster is on. So if you can unplug these things or if you're not using your charging cord, unplug it from a, from the receptacle, then you you will be saving energy because that's about 10% of our energy bills is gone to what we call vampire energy.
3: Yeah, and I would add to you, I think there's American Council on Energy Efficient Economy is a great national resource on this. Um, but I also just read recently you can buy like a special, uh, like a power, um, you know, if you like plug a, it in. Yeah, a cord, um a charging cord. Um I forget the name is escaping me. But basically it would stop the phantom energy. Uh like a charging strip is that's what I'm thinking of.
4: Right. So yeah, it has a resistor in it. Basically that stops the flow of energy when something's not connected. So you know, vampire energy is something that everybody can work on too. You can put your um you know, something as simple as, you know, turn sure, turn off the TV. But your TV is still using electricity even when it's not on. So, you know, you can get a switch that can connect to the, to the wall and, and turn the whole thing off at once. So there's all kinds of things that you can do nowadays. And, yeah, I think um, E is probably the best resource in order to find those
2: types of technologies, too. Well, speaking of alphabet soup, Melissa, can you tell us about FCCA? <laughs>
3: Yes, well I know it's it's confusing, right? So FCCA is my organization that I work with. I'm the program manager of Florida Clinicians for Climate Action and um, we're a group of health professionals who are concerned about the impacts of climate change on Florida residents, especially vulnerable residents, and we're working to educate our, our patients, uh, peers in the public, and policymakers on solutions that are equitable. And with FCCA, um, equity and climate justice issues are really central in core to our mission. We believe that you know we need to advocate for those who are most vulnerable among us. I'm sure you've seen Recently, there's just this heightened awareness of uh, racial equity issues, and climate justice is racial justice. There's so much ways in which the climate crisis is perpetuating uh, real disparities in health and outcomes, but also that solutions can benefit um, these populations. So. So that's what FCCA is. We're, you know, we're looking to engage more health professionals. Um, we do trainings. We teach um, doctors, nurses, and pharmacists. We're really open and who we include in our group. When we just give them an opportunity to learn about the health harms of climate change, there's eight ways that climate is affecting our health, and then to take action to protect their patients.
0: If you were a
2: medical person, and you're hearing this. How could they reach out to FCCA? to get someone to do a presentation. How could someone reach out to FCCA? What's the best route, Melissa?
3: Sure. So you can visit our website. It's at floridaclinicians.org. That's www.floridaclinicians.org. And there you'll be able to find me, the program manager, and contact me. And we have monthly meetings once a month, um, and we offer lots of different educational opportunities just to help uh, clinicians, you know, really get a better understanding of the eight ways that climate affects our health and what they can do about it.
2: I was looking at a, uh, the old EPA site, which actually gave information about climate change.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that
2: was sanitized.
1: There's actually uh, a disclaimer yeah.
2: now saying this is this information is no longer supported by the current EPA. Uh, uh, I've I seen that. How wow. science, science has become a political issue, uh, which is to our detriment. How could we help
3: Sure. Right you set your thermostat to the right temperatures. You set it in the summer. You set it to 78 degrees, and in the winter, 70 or below. That in itself is going to save you money and have a huge impact on your energy use. But I would also quickly relay you to, aside from saving money on your electric bill, the best thing you can do to address climate change is talk about it. Talk about it with your friends and talk about it with your lawmakers. And I actually have, if you want to talk a little bit about it, I can tell you about a specific policy initiative that's coming up that I think poses a real opportunity for change.
2: Please go ahead.
3: Okay. So – Florida has energy efficiency rules. It's actually a goal-setting goal process. It's called FICA. It's called the Florida Energy Efficiency Conservation Act. It's a rulemaking process governed by the Florida Public Service Commission, which is the body that regulates electric utilities. And they call on utilities to set goals every five years to achieve energy efficiency programs. Um, and as I mentioned before, Florida's power companies have some of the lowest standards in America, um, right now, we have one of those every five-year opportunities. So the Public Service Commission is going through a goal-setting process called FECA. Um, and this is our opportunity to try to advocate for stronger policies. And In particular, um, I would love to encourage folks to learn about this process and consider getting involved in some of the groups that are doing this advocacy work. Um, there's a couple of things you have to understand. Um in Florida, we have a regulated monopoly, which means you don't choose who your power company is, right? Like, you don't have a choice between Spectrum or Verizon. Like, you have whatever utility is. There's no there's no competition. And so, also with that, utilities get a guaranteed rate of return, a guaranteed profit. Um, it's like if you were a waiter in a restaurant, and no matter what, every table who you serve, you were going to guarantee that you get an 11% tip or a 15% tip every time that utilities build a power plant or put in a pipeline they make money off of that they have a guaranteed rate of return on those types of investments and so they're not incentivized to help customers lower their, their bills right because while well, to make less money and so we really have to kind of push back on that and urge the utilities to rethink those models I'm in particular We think there's going to be an opportunity for us to advocate um, at the Public Service Commission to improve the current policies to capture more energy efficiency. Um, Right now there's something called a RIM test, which Florida is the only state in the country that still uses this is an outdated test where they rate whether or not an energy efficiency program is good or not. The problem with it in, in this outdated practice is that they don't fairly value cost savings to customers or health benefits. So this is a huge obstacle to energy efficiency in Florida, and we have to advocate to eliminate the RIM test. So instead of counting the energy savings as a benefit, the RIM test counts it as a cost because it's lost revenue to the utility. So it's really time for us to reframe this debate and to start thinking about what is best for the customers, not necessarily what is best for the utilities. And so how can we, you know, modify the incentives and change the way that we do the math in Florida so that we put value on the energy efficiency savings and the cost savings to customers? Does that make sense? I know it's complicated, but it's hugely important.
2: The only part I didn't understand was the benefit for the consumer.
3: (laughs) This is Florida. (laughs) Yeah, well, we have to, in other states, Florida is the only state that uses the RIM test, right? It's just this outdated math, where really the sum is on the scale in favor of, the utilities want to build new things, right? They make more money when they do that. They don't want to help you save electricity. In other states, they've done something called decoupling. That's when they decouple profits from kilowatt hours. So the utility, because at the end of the day, our friend Susan likes to say this, you're paying for a hot shower and a cold beer, right? You don't care exactly how many kilowatt hours it takes you to get that. So if the, if, if the utility can come into your home, help you save electricity, and achieve the same result, right, your lights are on, your A.C. works, like it doesn't matter if we could find a way to incentivize them to help people to lower their bill, which they've done this in other states, you know, that would be a huge solution to this problem.
4: Exactly. I mean, climate change needs solutions and not things like the REM test, which make it much harder for the utility to even do that kind of work. Um, I would like to back to something that you said earlier, Rick, about how it's getting hotter and that's going to cause an increase in our electric usage. So there's been a lot of talk about uh, COVID and, and how the um, and we're, there's not as, uh, as much electric usage as there was, but that's kind of not true. So there's... Overall, there's, you know, our electricity production is down, but in our homes, our electricity production is up as much as 10%. And again, you know, like, like the COVID, like climate change, it hits the people who can least afford it, right? So as it, the world gets hotter and as we continue with this pandemic, we're already seeing this increase in residential electric use in, and You know, that's one of the things that we really need to get a handle on is, uh, you know, these older homes need to be buttoned up, and we need to make sure that we are doing everything we can, advocating against the rent test, um, to to make sure that we are doing everything we can to lower uh, electric usage.
3: Yeah, and that's all jobs, right? Those are jobs in local communities. That's ways to help people you know, all of that work in our homes and improving our homes is going to improve air quality. It's going to improve quality of life. It's going to create jobs, green jobs.
4: Right. It's a win-win-win.
3: And it's,
4: yeah, and it's also workforce housing. So we talk about affordable housing all the time, but there is no affordable housing, right? The most affordable house is the house you're in. So if we, and, But we're pushing people out of their homes. So one of the things you can do, of course, is to upgrade these older homes and keep people in them.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you, Melissa, and thank you, Annie. It has been a very informative, very, very important information that you've been able to share with us today. Thanks so much for your contribution. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us, Rick. Have a wonderful day, and great talking to you both. Bye-bye. Thank you for your
3: time. Appreciate it. And that
0: was Rick Spizak, and I have Rick Spizak again. This is part two with Professor Wendy Lynn Lee on going back to school with COVID. Professor,
2: we know, those of us who have any attention at all to what our students' situations are, know that many students do not have the technology, don't have the internet connectivity, uh, much less the attention span necessary to do distance learning. Let's just look at the technology for a second. Have you Mm -hmm. heard anything about developing a realistic technological fix to the fact that a lot of students don't have the connectivity that would that mm-hmm. real remote learning requires because I see, it, little. I see it in my yeah. classes when i'm teaching technology students people who mm-hmm. one would expect would have a better technology and they don't all have high-speed computers with high-speed connections yeah. a lot of times they're yeah. trying to oh. contact the class through a phone, and you can't do mm-hmm. high-end computer work. Have you heard any discussion of this? Maybe on a uh, on a no, and, professional
5: and lots, level. And lots of us last uh, last semester um, tried to make this very clear to our our own administrations, right? That we tried to make clear all of the problems of interconnectivity. Um, students who live really rurally and only you know main, and don't don't have access even to hotspots.
0: Yeah.
5: Um, I I had students whose parents are are now laid off and they're home and they they've got to commandeer the family single computer. So I have students who are trying to do the the entirety of my course um, on, on their phones, right, on, on their cell phones from a car parking lot, you know, like parked outside a Taco Bell somewhere where they can get internet connection i had two kids who were homeless homeless last semester in february right when it's cold here um know these are all very real problems and we worry about them a lot and i would be the last teacher on this planet to, to suggest that there is any replacement for person-to-person instruction there absolutely is not face-to-face is is almost always going to be better. Where what the almost means, unless you are risking death, right? But we are. That is what we're risking. All right. Yeah. That that is the reality of this. Um, so no, we what we what we could have been doing, right? With with all the time that we spent here trying to figure out, right, how many kids we can stuff in a classroom without everybody getting infected. What we could have been doing instead was figuring out the technology, figuring out the access, getting getting laptops to students, right? Figuring out student by student how we're going to get them as engaged as we possibly can online, right? Helping teachers, right, with all the available tech tools, right, to get us familiar and comfortable Right, unlike last semester where it was just kind of a crisis, right, and we did right. the best we could, right. You know, we could have been doing that, right. But instead, right, as as another colleague of mine put it to me, instead, what we've created in a lot of universities is the expectation of students and university students and parents alike that universities are going to be this sort of club med that it's about. This is how we put it. I mean this just as cynically as it sounds, that it's about the experience, right, which means the parties, which means the gyms, which means, which means all the club medi stuff that universities come with now. And now we're going to pay the piper on that, right, because students, in having de-emphasized the educational aspect of university life, and having overemphasized the, the fun club Medi part of university life, now if we can't offer club med, right, kids will just go online at at Phoenix, right, which we all still know is woefully inferior, but it's cheaper, right? Because if you can't have club med, you might as well have club Phoenix.
2: Let me ask you a couple other political questions. I I, I so appreciate your insights mm-hmm. in the academic environment and. And that was one of what I wanted to have our primary focus. But I think there's some other questions I'd love to run by you. Um, What what (laughs) any young person who sees senators getting off after clearly taking advantage of insider trading when they see people like Stone and Flynn being pardoned? What Mm -hmm. can they think about American justice? Oh, they they laugh. They
5: I if they're paying attention at all, right? right I mean, right. that's our
2: first question, right? Oh, in
5: many ways, our political culture in this country is so debased that you know whether or not they're paying attention at all. I think is our first question. Yeah, that's um, but if they are, right? You know, I think a lot of what they're thinking is, why do I even vote? Like, why, why do I bother? In a in a political culture that's so corrupted, right? That's so obviously about power and money, right? If that's what it's about, right? Then like, what's what's the point? What's the point of being engaged, right? Why pretend that we live in in a democratic republic when we don't, right? And that's only what the students who actually care about this, right,
1: right, right,
5: are thinking, right? This is not the vast majority of students. And, and watching the COVID crisis is, is just kind of demoralizing when you see um, how little attention is paid to critically important issues: the pandemic, the corruption, right, the um, the obvious depravity of the president.
2: Okay, another one I got for you, and and <laughs> uh, it, it's it's a, a question that's so hideous that I I hesitate to frame it, but I got to ask. A philosopher.
1: When Sounds when you
2: <laughs> when you see the pitiful response to the blatant gaming of the voting system, you have to yeah. wonder: Is there an opposition party? Yeah. Uh,
5: <laughs> I don't know the answer to that. I the I am fearful, as I think are most. Um, about this upcoming election. It's vulnerability to voter suppression, I think, is great. The Trump administration's attempt to undermine even the Postal Service who would be delivering those ballots. Um, When I see the effort at voter suppression, when I see a president who would clearly, plainly rather have us risk our lives standing in line to vote uh, than allow mail-in ballots. When I see disorganization dis, dis and I think a kind of um, exhaustion on the left, um, I, it, I, I it's just generally fearful. And I, I honestly don't know whether what we're seeing is the result of a democracy that was already failing or a a symptom about which we could do something still. But as I look out onto that future, uh, it's you, you work to feel hopeful. You have to work hard to feel hopeful. You know, when,
2: when we see this administration, not just turn from science, but spurn and try to denounce science. It's it's not yeah. surprising when we see them want to play numbers games and, and shut down reporting, but to, to the CDC, when they yeah. are the center for disease control, that is their purpose.
5: Yeah. yeah. I, you know, and I think that story has not gotten as much attention as it deserves, even in the main, in the mainstream media. Um, but that that is a a terrifying prospect that the government is trying to control the hospitalization numbers that the government is trying to just control the numbers and the thing of it is it it will fail it will fail it will just fail in ways i think that are both spectacular and even more harmful to the public health we'll still get those numbers because of intrepid, devoted, committed journalists, newspaper by newspaper, hospital by hospital, county by county. Right? We'll get them from the Miami Herald, right? We'll get them uh, from the Colorado Springs um, Gazette. Right. We'll we'll still see those numbers. But it will be because journalists and scientists Care
2: about them, because when, our government has abandoned us.: One last question, and this is a, another one of those hideous examples of the misdeeds and, and malfeasance of the Trump administration, and as well as others. My question is this: Why do you think that nothing has been done to limit police abuses that are so blatant and so obvious? you think it's political? Is it just fear? Why have there's why has there been no constraint? Why is it still common to have murdered in the street with before before any attempt at justice can be made?
5: Because the color of the people who are the object of police abuse aren't white. If they were white this would be different and i think we all know it
2: it's, it it's so appalling you know there's there's this is almost a seasonal thing every so often mm-hmm. it gets caught there's now more mm-hmm. cameras out there catching it and and we know about more of it but it hasn't changed there's no constraint is and, and the rarity of an officer actually being punished is is it's like every mm-hmm. third blue moon, there might be an officer punished. Professor Wendy, yeah. I, I can't thank yeah. you enough for this amazing thing. Can is there, is there one more thought you'd like to share with our listeners?
5: Well, I, I was just going to add to your observation that if um, we don't – we fail to pay adequate attention to police abuses, particularly of African-American men. But we do so for the same reasons that we don't particularly care about who's dying from the coronavirus, so long as, right, this is another op-ed I wrote, so long as the people doing the dying aren't young and
2: white. Well, Professor Wendy Lynn Lee, thank you so very much for your time. I appreciate your wisdom and your insight, both on educational matters and political matters. Thank you again for joining us.
5: You bet. Have a good day.
2: You too. Bye-bye. Be safe. (laughs) Yeah, you too.
0: All right, guys, we've got Janine Maloff coming on, and I thought I didn't have this intro for her, but I want to play this before Janine comes on. Have a listen. That was a lullaby being sung by the uh, mothers, the mom protesters in Portland, and it's just so lovely, and uh, we will be sharing that again in the future. Janine, welcome. Thank
6: you, Brooke. And as you said, that was in Portland, the Wall of Moms, and they were singing to the tune of a lullaby, hands up, please don't shoot me. And I thought that was so poignant that we had to bring it up. In fact, that same Wall of Moms was then tear gassed by Trump stormtroopers without mercy so that the next night or so they came back, and this time there was a wall of veterans to protect the Wall of Moms. This, this is just something – you can't make this stuff up. So I'm going to talk about the fact that one of the reasons this stuff is going on is because it, it isn't just Trump, all right? Trump is not an anomaly. He is a symptom. But this cruelty that we're seeing is mainstream GOP, and, it, and a lot of the people assisting Trump, such as Bill Barr and uh, the torture memo author John Yoo, these are George W. Bush retreads. So, you know, once again, no, uh, no friendship yucking up with Michelle Obama is going to wipe their crimes clean. So I'm just going to get started. So this past week, Donald Trump, supported by his rogue attorney general Bill Barr and DHS temporary head Chad Wolf, ordered unidentified military police Militarized police, first to Portland, under the auspices of quelling any rioting caused by the police murder of George Floyd, Brianna, Taylor, and many others, and defending, allegedly defending, specific federal property, namely a federal courthouse in Portland, in addition to various statutes. Now, apparently, Trump and the GOP cares more about these inanimate objects than people, especially in the middle of a COVID pandemic. These stormtroopers, and it's the only way you can call them, then proceeded to snatch people off the streets, throw them into unmarked vans, Pinochet style, I'll go there, and whisk them off to an unidentified destination, which turned out to be the same federal courthouse. Now, Trump has now sent more of these illegitimate and unidentified forces to Chicago and Kansas City. The mayor of Kansas City found out, I think, via Twitter from a friend. He didn't even know they were coming. During these militarized attacks thus far in Portland and now elsewhere, these cowardly soldiers tear-gassed a group of moms, the same group you heard singing, hands up, please don't shoot me, to the tune of a lullaby at the beginning of this segment. Cowardice of the police aside, this report is speaking to a greater danger, namely that of the imperial presidency seeking to establish dictatorship. And this goes back to the days of Richard Nixon. Make no mistake, Trump has every intention of strangling the last faint shred of democracy for himself and his corporate friends. And mainstream GOP really wants this. You you could argue that Donald Trump is the useful idiot doing the dirty work for the GOP and the 1%. And Portland is just the first trial step. They're going to export this police violence nationwide anywhere the non-1% and non-white community and white allies dare to demand their human rights. So, you know, again, we talked about the Portland moms, you know, singing hands up, please don't shoot me. And these were moms from across Portland, uh, and they formed a human shield, and then they were tear-gassed. And the the organizers of what they call themselves the Wall of Moms said, quote, we will protect protesters without the use of violence, the organizers wrote on a Facebook page for the Wall of Moms. Quote, we will shine a light of the unjust narrative being thrown around. Protesters are being stripped of their rights. Uh, one organizer said, quote, let's do what we do best, protect people. And then participants and observers, um, some of the moms were holding signs reading the feds are outside agitators. And the women also chanted, feds stay clear, moms are here. Now, once again, this the idea that they would tear gas somebody's mom is, is just beyond the pale. And, uh, you know, one of the organizers of the Grassroots co- Coalition, Bev Barnum, told BuzzFeed News, quote, there's all the times in one's life when you hear about things in authoritarian regimes in Nazi Germany, and you would say, I wouldn't put up with that. This is that time. And then Julia Piety, who joined the Wall of Moms Sunday night after she uh, participated in a, in a Black Lives Matter protest, told BuzzFeed, Um, Pretty much the same thing. And, you know, Shannon Watts, uh, founder of a national gun control group, Moms Demand Action. She was quoted saying, American moms are always on the front lines because if we lose our children, what else do we have to lose? And, you know, there was a journalist, Joshua Potash, who basically warned that these federal agents were just far too willing to fire tear gas at mothers that were holding a peaceful demonstration. And then Oregon Governor Kate Brown um, called the president out on quote a failure to lead this nation through a global pandemic. And again, the journalist Potash said if the quote if the feds will gas and assault a bunch of moms, they'll do anything. End quote. And so you're thinking, okay, where does Trump think he gets the authority to do this? Well, here's the sum of Trump's new legal strategy one of the torture memo authors, UC Berkeley law school professor, John Yu. Now Yu's been having, he's been taking virtual meetings with Trump and his team on how, on helping Trump, how to proceed uh, with taking the power he wants. And I'll say it again. Trump is not an anomaly. Trump is mainstream GOP. And that includes the racism we see in what can only be called neo-Nazism. Jul, Julian Borger wrote in the Guardian, um, You know, that he's basically consulting this Bush torture lawyer on how to skirt the law and rule by decree. And John Yoo uh, worked with Jay Bybee, and those two men wrote the infamous torture memo. And this was basically designed to be a get-out-of-jail-free card for members of the George W. Bush administration that wanted to basically unleash the CIA and other groups and let them waterboard, let them – You know, use tasers on a prisoner's genitals, um, stress positions, taking a fully grown person and and fitting them into a little tiny box for hours at a time. You know, uh, again, there is no justification. But and, And, oh, by the way, just so happens the John Hughes book is going to be published next week. And what's the title? Defender in Chief. This is not by mistake. This is by plan. So John Yoo told The Guardian um, that he, he admitted he'd been talking to White House officials um, about his view on a recent Supreme Court ruling on immigration. And basically what happened, according to you he said if the court really believes what it just did, because what, what the Supreme Court ruling does is it would let Trump issue executive orders on whether to apply existing federal laws. And you was quoted saying, if the court really believes what it just did, then it just handed President Trump a great deal of power, too. And you went on to say, this is a direct quote, the Supreme Court has said President Obama could choose not to enforce immigration laws for about 2 million cases. And why can't the Trump administration do something similar with immigration, create its own program? But it could do it in areas beyond that, like health care, tax policy, criminal justice inner city policy I talked to them a fair amount about cities because of the disorder end quote so now we have Trump who was uh, interviewed on Fox of course and he said he's going to use that interpretation to try, try to and this is a scary book to force through decrees on various issues such as health care immigration and various other unidentified plans <clears throat> and so The White House consultations with you were actually reported by Axios. Now, constitutional scholars and various human rights activists have pointed to, you know, the the paramilitary forces that we've seen deployed to Portland and several other cities now. And these constitutional scholars really do see this as a red flag, that Trump is ready to take this this interpretation given to him by John Yoo, and, and basically run with it as a means to suppress basic constitutional rights. Right. And so Lawrence Tribe, who is a Harvard a Harvard Law School constitutional law professor, wrote on Twitter, "Quote: This is how it begins. The dictatorial hunger for power is insatiable. If ever there was a time for peaceful civil disobedience, that time is upon us." So when we talk about use legal memo he drafted in August 2002. And he did so under his boss Jay Bybee, and Bybee was rewarded <laughs> not too long ago with a federal judgeship. Basically, you was a deputy assistant attorney general in the Justice Department's guess what OLC Office of Legal Counsel. We've called him out before, and the memo st- it stated, quote, necessity or self-defense may justify interrogation methods that might violate. Criminal Prohibition on Torture, which, you know, is the Eighth Amendment. It says no cruel or unusual punishment. But apparently in John Hughes' twisted psyche, you just twist the words a little more and torture isn't cruel or unusual then. So the memos that you created, these were used to justify the other things I talked about, waterboarding and other forms of torture at CIA black sites around the world as well as at Gitmo. And so you was asked if he regretted his memos, and you was quoted saying, "I'm still not exactly sure about how far the CIA took its interrogation methods, but I think if they stayed within the outlines of the legal memos, I think they weren't violating American law end quote. Could you sidestep the issue of torture anymore." So as I said, his book, Defender in Chief is going to be published next week. And in it, in the book, you actually actively argues that Trump was actually fighting to, quote, "restore the powers of the presidency," and in a way that he, you claims would have fit the, uh, would have met the approval of the founding fathers of the Constitution. So my question is exactly where in the Constitution was it stated? You can't claim the mantle of original construction that conservatives like you always claim and then simultaneously claim that you possess some superpower that can ferret out the founders' intent of over 200 years ago. But you goes on to say, quote, They wanted each branch to have certain constitutional weapons, and then they wanted them to fight. And so they wanted the president to try to expand his powers, but they've also Congress to keep fighting with the president, end quote. Now, I'm going to say, well, I agree there was intent to have each branch fight it out. That's the rationale for the separation of powers doctrine. This does not in any way translate legitimately into establishing a presidential dictatorship or elected monarchy, which is precisely what will happen if this dangerous doctrine of you or this you doctrine is allowed to stand unchallenged. So how does John U. twist a Supreme Court or a SCOTUS decision into uh, basically the fuel to create an elected presidential monarchy you know, or the unitary executive on illegitimate steroids? And this, again, this was based on a Supreme Court decision on DACA. And you wrote both in Newsweek and the National Review. He's quite proud of what he's done. And he wrote that the SCOTUS, the Supreme Court decision, that blocked Trump's attempt to repeal um, Obama's DACA or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program um, and established by executive order meant Trump could do the same thing to achieve his policy goals. So he's saying, well, because Obama – did this by decree and basically just disregarded the law, then of course any president can. And, you know, you goes on to suggest that, for instance, and he goes beyond just DACA, the limits of this very narrow SCOTUS decision. He's talking about expanding it to anything. So, for instance, um, if Trump wanted to declare a national right to carry firearms openly, That would uh, basically conflict with a lot of state laws. Um, According to you, he said, quote, he could declare that he would not enforce federal firearms laws and that a new Trump permit would free any holder of state and local gun control restrictions. He goes on to say, quote, even if Trump knew that his scheme lacked um, legal authority, he would get away with it for the length of his presidency. And then apparently in a telephone interview, um, John Yu went on to say, quote, according to the Supreme Court, the president can now choose to underenforce the law in certain areas. Now That's heavy. And it can't be undone by his successor unless that successor goes through this onerous thing called the Administrative Procedure Act, which usually takes one to two years. Now, the Administrative Procedure Act is the way that basically presidents are supposed to legitimately deal with established law if they want to challenge it, either through that or through a court challenge. Um, And this idea that a president can now sidestep the law or under-enforce it in any area and that whatever they do can't be undone by the successor unless the successor goes through the legitimate Administrative Procedure Act this is explosive. This is really frightening. So, uh, you know, once again, you is letting slip that the GOP is either too lazy or too savagely indifferent to actually read administrative law. Now, there's been constitutional scholars that have rejected use arguments. And, um, you know, Lawrence Tribe once again called use interpretation of the DACA ruling indefensible. Lawrence Tribe from Harvard Law School also added, quote, I fear that this lawless administration will take full advantage of the fact that judicial wheels grind slowly and that it will be difficult to keep up with the many ways Trump, aided and abetted by Bill Barr as attorney general and Chad Wolf as acting head of Homeland Security, can usurp congressional powers and abridge fundamental rights in the immigration space in particular, but also in matters of public health and safety. And when you was asked about paramilitary units used, Against Portland um, he was quoted saying uh, it has to be really reasonably related to protecting federal buildings. Um, so also Alka Pradhan is a defense counsel and this particular Pradhan defended many 9-11 terrorist cases um, with a defense counsel uh, defending various inmates at Gitmo and Pradhan said quote John use so-called reasoning has always been based on What can the president get away with, rather than what is the purpose and letter of the law? That is not legal reasoning. It's inherently tyrannical and anti-democratic. I think Pradham's right. And many other defense lawyers, um, you know, have argued that the use of torture against their clients that was, again, made possible by U's 2002 memo invalidated much of the government's case against these alleged terrorists. Um, and then Pradham went also to say, on, on record, quote, the fact that John U is employed and free to opine on legal matters is an example of the culture of impunity in the United States. And that was as reported in The Guardian. So, you know, once again, John Yu is a retread from George W. Bush. Bill Barr is a retread both from Reagan, Bush Sr., and George W. Um and once again, David, journalist David Dayen had jumped into this too. And, you know, he said the fun part, quote, is that you frames this as making it easy for presidents to break the law. Uh, and Trump jumps on it and says, yes, let's do that. And that's pretty true. Now, you wrote an article in the National Review as well as Newsweek. And the case, the DACA decision we keep talking about. Is uh, the Department of Homeland Security versus Regents of the University of California. Ironically, John Yu is a professor at UC Berkeley Law School, which is part of the University of California system. And, you know, again, this is this idea that the White House can use discretion on enforcing the law to set policy. And there's something very frightening about that because it's saying, oh, the law is what the president says it is. No, that's not true. Presidents aren't supposed to determine law. They can have their interpretation, but they do not create law. So, you know, once again, the White House is very hot on John Yoo. They just love him to pieces. And... Um, you know, Trump also said in an interview, quote, the Supreme Court gave the president of the United States powers that nobody thought the president had by approving, by doing what they did, their decision on DACA. Uh, and Trump went on to say, quote, the decision by the Supreme Court on DACA allows me to do things on immigration, on health care, on other things that we've never done before. And, you know, whenever you see John Yu pop up along with Bill Barr, Basically, everybody needs to become very irate because these are men that really do see the presidency as more of an elected monarchy. They despise democracy, and they they use the letter of the law to twist it and get what they want. And unfortunately, this falls back on Barack Obama, too. Since Obama refused to hold the previous George W. Bush administration accountable, this Pandora's box of imperial power remains open. And this is a portal to that imperial presidency, the, the tyrannical imperial presidency that Schlesinger warned about that the GOP has salivated over since the days of Richard Nixon. Um, and so, for instance, Matt Duss tweeted he's, – He's Duss is a foreign policy advisor to Senator Bernie Sanders – and Duss tweeted, quote, the reappearance of disgracefully still employable torture advocate John Yoo is a good reminder – at this time, people need to be prosecuted, and it is true. John, you should not be practicing law. He should, along with Jay Bybee, they should have been criminally prosecuted. They should have been disbarred, criminally prosecuted, and they should be sitting behind bars. Um, again, the involved, you being involved in this administration, Georgetown, Professor Don Moynihan on Twitter said that the current president is not so out of step with his Republican predecessor. Moynihan was quoted saying that, quote, the centrality of John Yoo and his message that SCOTUS makes it easy for presidents to violate the law reminds us that there is a lot of continuity between the Bush and Trump administration, including an almost limitless view of executive power, end quote. And it's true. Okay? It just is. Um, and again, John Yoo himself, you know, once again, this is a bold, ballsy type uh, interpretation um, and you know it's something that we we really need to worry about um, you know it, it's one of those things where oh, according to this you know the Supreme Court
5: you know,
6: we, we talked about basically the different types of power that each branch has and so you know, Judge Roberts said, quote, you know, um, the chief justice said, quote, even if it is illegal for DHS to extend work authorization and other benefits to DACA recipients, DACA could not be rescinded in full without any consideration whatsoever of a non-deportation policy other than on the ground of this illegality. And, and basically what this is saying is that you know, a lot of Supreme Court cases, they look like they're on the surface about a specific case. But what you're really talking about is how power can be twisted. And so, you know, some of the most important SCOTUS decisions really started on the facts of what looked like very trivial things. Um, You know, Article 2 of the Constitution, you know, basically requires cabinet officers to undergo presidential nomination. um, But a president can terminate treaties. All right. Um, even though treaties must also receive Senate approval. So we've got a problem here, and it hasn't been really dealt with. And, uh, you know, the Constitution says that the president has the responsibility to, quote, take care that the laws be faithfully executed. But, again, the Constitution was written over 200 years ago, and we have to look at what that actually means, you know, under this duty. You know, a president cannot enforce an executive order that violates the Constitution in theory. But, uh, you know, for example, they they spoke of how President Thomas Jefferson ended all prosecutions under the 1798 Sedition Act and part of those convicted under it. And that allocation of power um, reveals how perverse this region's decision is. Um, and it, it's really very, very dangerous. And you know, you wrote in in um, so basically the problem isn't merely the unitary executive theory; um, it's the imperial presidency. And so, just when you think things okay, this is all about the Republicans, we also have to realize that we have some we have some um, uh, some responsibility from the Democrats as well, because when Barack Obama was in office um, back in 2011. They authorized and the Senate passed the ND, NDAA, which is the National Defense Authorization Bill. And I wrote about this back in 2011, 2012. They, it was written uh, basically. I wrote that this parts of this bill, when the Senate um, voted for it, they committed treason. Now it was written and it was planned in secret by the Senate Armed Services Committee. And that NDAA in 2012 snuck in three sections which collectively sanction indefinite detention of alleged terrorists or terrorist sympathizers, whatever that is, anywhere in the world, including the U.S., and designates the military the duty to arrest, imprison, and interrogate without benefit of counsel accused civilians here on Main Street. So ironically, the abuse of civilian Iraqis by our military And by military contractors, I said in 2011, it's coming to a locale near you. Okay, basically Fallujah here on Main Street. And now we're seeing it. You know, uh, I think it's what's happening in Portland is so shocking. And it all ties together to uh, basically unrestrained presidential power and a Congress that fails to do its job. Um, What we're seeing in Portland, white progressives are – Stun, but unfortunately for communities of color, all that violence is just another Friday. And when the NDAA in 2012 was passed, it was convenient timing because it coincided with Occupy Wall Street, just like now we have protests by, with Black Lives Matter. And, you know, it almost looks like the robber barons of Wall Street circling the wagons in a fit of leg- legislative revenge against the rabble, namely you and I. So when you do look at the NDAA then that Obama signed off on, 2012, that Trump to use sections 1031, 1032, and 1033 and 35, it's another AUMF, Authorization for Use of Military Force. This was written by then-Senator Carl Levin, a Democrat, and Senate Minority Leader John McCain. And ironically, Levin was considered a constitutional scholar and an alleged progressive. And this should have been an ordinary Defense Appropriations Bill, but it morphed into a get-out-of-jail-free card for any president after arbitrarily rendering previously constitutionally protected dissent into a war crime. Now, the NDAA of 2012, or S-1867, allows any president the right to sentence anyone, including U.S. citizens, to indefinite detention in a military prison. Um, Those sentenced under this new law, under that law, are sentenced without a trial or the aid of an attorney. They have no due process rights other than what the military justice system allows any other unlawful enemy combatant. Um, And this is truly frightening. And the development would have remained secret, except there were whistleblowing coming from the ACLU back then. Now, Sections 1031, 1032, and 1033, and 35, it's in mundane legalese, but basically it's this. Section 1031 is a renewal of the 2001 uh, authorization for use of military force. And it allows military force and detention against previously identified per- perpetrators um, or those who allegedly harbor anyone who substantially supports, And but you don't know what substantially or supports means. Um, and nowhere in the piece of legislation do they define it either. Um, And and it's ironic that the majority of senators that signed off on this back in 2012 were attorneys who would never sign on to such flimsy and vague criteria they've imposed on everyone else. 1035 through 33 through 35 forces new restrictions on the government's right to transfer detainees out of Gitmo to another side. But the worst provision of all, section 1032. It mandates that every person accused of terrorism or terrorist sympathies or substantially support associated forces, whatever that means, there's no no criterion to define it, will be indefinitely imprisoned by the military as opposed to the civilian criminal justice system. So again, you can look at what happened to Bradley or Chelsea Manning during his Gitmo days. Once again, that's why. The semantic trap of the NDAA, section 1032, um, What it does, you know, the administration got very defensive said, we're not going to do this to American citizens. Um, And Senator Levin at the time said nothing would be automatic. The administration would have the discretion to waive military detention and hold a detainee in civilian custody if it decided to do so. But that's disingenuous. and constitutional scholar Glenn Greenwald pointed it out, saying the Levin McCain bill would require that all accused terrorists be held in military detention and not be charged in civilian court, including those apprehended on U.S. soil, with two caveats. It does exempt U.S. citizens and legal residents and allows the executive branch to issue a waiver if it wants to charge an accused terrorist in the civilian system. And that sounds fine, but like many dirty de- deals, the devil's in the details. Notice how the president would still have the prerogative to place American citizens in military detention. It does not specifically forbid the placement of American citizens in military detention with everything that comes with it, including enhanced interrogation, which means torture. So basically if it doesn't forbid it, then guess what? Yes, American citizens can be just scooped up and, that, and, and tossed in a van. And that is what we're seeing in Portland right now. So if, you know, I despise Mr. Trump, but the fact is, he's getting part of that legal protection from what a previous Congress and Barack Obama signed off on. And this is something that we need to look at very, very carefully. It is outrageous, um, and once again, it's very reminiscent of other. Uh, there was another law in the in Europe some time ago. And it also nullified a person's civil rights to a trial. And the name of the law was, I cannot pronounce it, the it's in German, okay, for Decree for the Protection of People and State. And the principal architect of that law was then Reich President von Hindenburg under the dictate of Adolf Hitler. So, again, this is a very dangerous thing that John Yu has handed off to, to Trump with this, Go to decision, but once again, we have plenty of people to blame on both sides, and that is part of that report. Now, I'm going to really quickly talk about what happened in, for five minutes. What happened in my own home state? Um, I am a resident of the state of Missouri, and we have an idiot governor named Mike Parson's, and he was quoted on MSNBC and USA Today regarding covid because he wants school to start immediately and he is a trump sycophant now he kind of does it with a folksy approach you know uh he took over for governor greitens and and people said oh mike parsons just comes across as a nice guy but he's just as his, his attitude on what happens with us are just as evil as trump and so he downplayed the risk for children with school reopening and here's the maddening stupid and cold-blooded quote itself Quote, these kids have got to get back to school. They're at the lowest risk possible. And if they do get COVID-19, which they will, and they will when they go to school, they're not going to the hospitals. They're not going to sit in doctor's offices. They're going to go home, and they're going to get over it. we got to move on, he continued. We can't just let this thing stop us in our tracks. I have no words for how not only stupid but how cold-blooded this is. Um, There was a recent study that came out from South Korea, and what it showed was that while young children may not transmit it as much as carriers, children aged 10 through 18 are very effective carriers or super spreaders. So even if the kids get sick and they don't get seriously ill, they will spread it to their families, to their parents. And I just wonder if Donald Trump and Mike Parsons are ready and Mitch McConnell for a nation of orphans, seriously, because that's what could happen. Now, Parsons' Democratic rival, because Parsons running for re-election as governor, uh, State Auditor Nicole Galloway um, basically said that Parsons' comments on COVID and children displayed, quote, stunning ignorance. And Nicole Galloway also stated that, quote, the virus doesn't stop with our children. The teachers, bus drivers, janitors, food service workers, parents, grandparents, and neighbors Who our children see every day are susceptible to this virus, too. We need a plan to keep all Missouri families safe. And, you know, once again, on MSNBC, you know, I was a speech language pathologist in the St. Louis City public schools for 30 years. And uh, prior to all this attention, the superintendent, um, Kelvin Adams, was just going to open things up. Now they're actually offering three options, one of which is virtual. And once again, we're seeing a spike here in Missouri, uh, according to data from John Hopkins. And, and John Hopkins also, so the U.S. has nearly 4 million COVID cases and over 140,000 deaths. And, you know, the Kaiser Family Foundation found one in four teachers are at risk of becoming seriously ill. Uh, and then around 3 million people over the age of 65 live in a household with school-aged children. And, again, that large study from South Korea, it said children between the ages of 10 and 19 can spread the virus as well as adults, okay? So, you know, again, when you hear what Mike Parsons had to say, all right, it, it is so unconscionable, so cold-blooded and cruel, and, and you know, you tie that in with Trump and Betsy DeVos, and, you know, my attitude is this, do not – send children back to school prematurely. Do not endanger anyone else's children. In fact, I think Donald Trump should send Barron back to school first, if that's the case, and Ivanka should send her kids before they endanger anyone else's babies. Um, The fact is, the children in the St. Louis City Public Schools are, a lot of their families do not have health care. Some 20% are, at any time, are homeless or precariously housed. Um, classes are overcrowded There's no way to socially distance There absolutely isn't And to not offer a full day of virtual school Is just plain evil And you know, the only thing I can say to Mike Parson Is that there is a special When it comes to Mike Parson and Donald Trump And the entire GOP There is a special place in hell For these people That would endanger someone else's babies and those are my two reports. Wow. That, yeah.
0: <clears throat> all of that was so powerful. Thank you so much, Janine. Nice uh, I wanted to take a minute, too, to uh, uh, have you tell people a little bit about the environmental justice report
1: that oh, you've yes. been doing
0: okay. Thursday night. Uh, yeah. And I'm sitting here
6: in a hot house right now, too, because my AC broke. Um uh, the it's the Environmental Justice Report with Janine Maloff, or you can just call it EJR. And what we're doing is we're looking at environmental crimes, crimes against humanity, crimes against animals, crimes against the planet. Um, and we're looking at not just individual environmental crimes, but also systemic crimes, patterns that keep emerging. And it, it basically airs uh, Thursday evenings at uh, 7 o'clock p.m. Central or 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Um, And we're kind of fleshing out the details. All right? It's an hour long, and there's a lot of material to cover. And the idea is that none of this is happening in a vacuum. All right? These crimes have occurred over time. Um, Nine times out of ten in the past when I did – I used to do some environmental journalism – And, um, you know, whether it was Fukushima or BP or whatever, when I looked through all the documents, what I found was that almost every single time there was a pattern of intentional neglect on the part of polluters because they didn't want to pay fines or they didn't want to spend the money to do things correctly. You know, we're not anti-technology necessarily, but they should be forced to follow the rules. And last week's show, we talked about how environmental protesters are being criminalized and facing felony prosecution for what are misdemeanors, trespass, for instance, and facing anywhere from one to 25 years in jail. And that, especially when it comes to the fossil fuel uh, pipelines and fossil fuel industry, and that has to stop. So that's what's going on at EJR. Um, Hopefully we'll develop, you know, in terms of some, uh, different uh, guests, um, and um, we're going to keep reporting and, and, and basically uh, blowing the whistle. What it boils down to, because this planet belongs to all of us, and uh, you know, just because you own some stock or a majority stockholder, that doesn't mean you should be allowed to poison people's air, poison their water, and and this is something that is very real. It is not just the third world nation, and we need to realize, just like I said before with what happened in Portland, um, you know, more affluent uh, progressives, especially white progressives, are stunned by the injustice they see, by, you know, paramilitary forces scooping people up, disappearing them, pounding on them, and yet... For too many communities of color worldwide, it's just another Friday.
0: Wow, Janine. Thank you so much. We will see you again next week. And we will, uh, everybody, tune in Thursday night at 8 p.m. for the Environmental Justice Report. Good stuff. Thank you so much. This was an outstanding report tonight. Thank you, dear. Bye-bye. All right. Okay, guys. Uh, thanks for tuning in. We will see you again next week. I'm going to leave you with the, with awkward. awkward
1: i blow up from a nuclear bomb. I'm about to show up, got the right of their arms. If we don't all die tomorrow, I'm going to come for them blondes. Take your torch, hold them motherfuckers right in your wrongs. Nazis marching on the streets and Nazis in charge. There's even Nazis on these beats and Nazis on the wall. Questioning me, I got the motherfucking scars. And it could have been me who got crushed by that car. American free, it's white man free for all. And I'm going to tell you the truth, I got that white skin card. I never sat back and said, oh, thank God, oh, God. I cried looking out my back. Should've been there too, smash Nazis for the cause And I used to do that, but now my kids are my job And thanks to my wife, I got the time to spit pause This'll cost my paycheck, getting stalked by my boss Fuck Trump, fuck the system that made him Fuck afraid pundits and the lies who praise him Fuck you white apologists, privilege is amazing I know you won't acknowledge the world you were raised in Fuck Trump, fuck the system that made him Fuck afraid pundits and the lies who praise him Fuck you white apologists, privilege is amazing I know you won't acknowledge the world you were raising I didn't hang up the weapon, it was just a hiatus Haters have to speak the truth on the latest. Every single news channel calling in the favors Bunch of masturbators, afraid to be the bravest One in three black men, locked behind cages. Privileged ignoramus, posting on your pages Come catch me, I'd love to show you